This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. All right, and as you're finding a seat, if you'd open up to the book of Acts, and we're going to finish up chapter 4. If, uh, if you haven't been with us during this series, uh, or maybe you're new to the Bible, first of all, welcome. We're glad to have you. Uh, the book of Acts is a historical account of what happened in the early church. So after Jesus Christ came and after he lived and died on the cross, was buried and was raised on the third day, then the book of Acts picks up and tells what happens as the first believers come together and form a church led by his apostles, the twelve who were with him. And here's what we're learning in the book of Acts as we trace this history. We're really early into it. But here's a distinguishing lesson that we're learning. That the church, not the building, but the people, the church is fundamentally a supernatural endeavor. It's fundamentally supernatural. It's not a human endeavor. It's not something that people could accomplish. It's way more than just putting on a nice service. It's not, well, just have some good music and a a decent sermon and something nice for the kids. And uh, that's just sort of we put that together, and, and that's a human production that we pulled off on our own. As we read the book of Acts, what we see over and over is that the church, the people of God, are are a supernatural entity. That is, they are the result of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, working in them and through them by the power of the Spirit. It's, it's miraculous that people meet Jesus to begin with, and that their lives are changed. And what we see at the book of Acts here, this is after, I mentioned, this is after Jesus has already died for sinners. He's been resurrected. He's now ascended, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He has poured out the Holy Spirit, which is the presence of God, and he has begun to convert people. That is, people are beginning to believe in him, and those folks are drawing together. And now what's happening is they're beginning to experience resistance pushback, persecution. What's already happened in this chapter is that two of his apostles, Peter and John, have prayed for a man who's been healed. And this guy wasn't quiet about it. He was lame for 40 years. He couldn't walk. The Lord heals him miraculously, and he starts jumping around, yelling, celebrating, praising God, goes into the temple, causes a big commotion. A big crowd comes, and when the crowd comes, Peter and John stand up and say, Jesus healed this guy. The presence of Christ healed this guy. And uh, so then uh, everybody's very interested in this. Many people start responding to the message of Jesus Christ. And the religious leaders don't like it. So they come, they throw the guys in jail for a night, and the persecution begins. And it will never stop until Jesus returns one day. But they throw them in jail, and then they threaten them. And this this is the the high court of Israel, the same people that sentenced Jesus to death and were ultimately responsible for his crucifixion. Um, They say, do not talk about Jesus. So they threaten the apostles. After they threaten the apostles, this is what happens. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends, that is the apostles did, and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, 
Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. God, we posture ourselves as those who need to hear from you today. We ask you to speak to us through this passage, and we ask you to transform us that we might encounter you as these encountered you in the early church. Lord, we believe that you're no respecter of persons. We believe you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we pray that you would reveal yourself through the scripture today to us and by your spirit that you would give us Uh, faith, to trust in you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit to proclaim this passage with truth and with clarity, and I pray that you would feed us all today from your word. And I pray anyone who doesn't know you here today, that you might draw them into your family and that you might give them new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said before, this is the response of the church when they experience their first adversity as a new fledgling group of people. And here's what we really learn. Something bold happens here. What we learn is that in a time of adversity, the Holy Spirit produces bold prayer, bold witness, and bold unity among his people. That during a time of adversity, the Spirit meets the church, and the Spirit produces a bold prayer, a bold uh, unity and a bold witness among his people. First of all, I want to look at the bold prayer that they pray. They're released from standing before the Sanhedrin and being threatened not to speak about Jesus. The same people that executed Jesus now tell them not to speak about him. So that is a strong threat. It doesn't say exactly what they said they would do to them, but we're going to see in the next couple chapters. It starts with beating and then it goes to killing believers. That's where we're going in the next few chapters. And uh, so it's a serious threat. And what happens is, once they've been warned, they are released, verse 23. When they're released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So when they're freed, they go to their friends. 
I think it's interesting that in the fledgling church, that's how the members are described, friends. Uh, He could have said they went to their fellow congregants, they gathered with the parishioners, uh, they joined the other church members, but he says they went to their friends. And I think it's very interesting, this isn't a passage about friends, but I, I couldn't pass over that to say that that's really God's design for the people of God. That we be gathered together, not as part of a club or administratively joined to an organization, but that God build friends among His people. And it's easy for us to kind of read back in our modern understanding of friends, like, what's a friend? That's like my bestie from junior high, and we're still really close. And that's not what's in view here, by the way, because most of these people have only known each other weeks or months. Most of these people have been gathered. There's probably at this point, we know that there's at least, the previous chapter, earlier in the chapter says, there's at least 5,000 men. And we don't know if that meant men and women, generic, or just men. If it meant just men, then counting women and kids, there's what, 10, 15, maybe 20,000 people. And they're from all over Israel. And they've only been together since Pentecost, which is probably a matter of weeks or, or months at this point. So it's not like they have this deep history, but they have this connection and they're building their lives together. Chapter 2 says they're eating together, they're praying together, they're in one another's homes, they're studying together, they're gathering together like this. Uh, they are uh, worshiping together, they are witnessing together. So that's building friendship. So when they go back, it's not... It's not just some, the folks I'm in the club with, but it's I'm going back and praying for my friends. And that can take a while. Friendships aren't birthed instantaneously, but that should be our prayer. That, Lord, how can I be a friend to others in my church? Because I want it to be said true of me, too, that when I experienced adversity like they did, I went to my friends. When I experienced adversity, my friends came to me. When you experienced adversity, you came to your friends in the church. That's what happened. And they told them what the chief priests and the elders had said to them which was, don't talk about Jesus, and we're threatening you. So when the friends all heard what happened to the apostles, verse 24, they lifted their voices together to God. They lifted their voices together. Now, this word together means unanimously. They lifted their voices unanimously, sort of in one voice, to God. They, They prayed together. Now, This could mean that they were praying at the same time. That's certainly a possibility because the word can mean unanimously. So it could mean they're praying at the same time. I think it's probably sort of a Western cultural experience uh, in the church that prayer typically for us is one person speaking and everybody else being quiet and maybe saying amen at the end. Uh, which there's nothing wrong with that. That may have been what's happening here. I'm going to talk a little bit about it. But that's appropriate. So when if someone gets up here, and I just prayed a minute ago for the sermon, it was fine that everybody wasn't talking out loud at the same time. But that's, that's great. I'm not saying that's, that's fine. But if everybody's lifting their voices unanimously, it may also be that people were praying together out loud. That wouldn't confuse God. God wouldn't go, oh, hold on, one at a time, I'm having trouble keeping up here. God knows all the thoughts of everyone on the planet, past, present, and future, all at once. He's omniscient. And there can be something powerful about the people of God speaking together prayers to God. They lifted their voices unanimously. I remember being marked um, with an experience in 1985. I had experience to visit... Excuse me, South Korea and visit what at that time was the largest church in the world. I I guess it still is. When we were there, they were like receiving their 750,000th member. So they had three quarters of a million people in this local church. And, um, so 
I was there with a group of Americans who were going to learn, and uh, they, this church did all-night prayer meetings, and so we went to one of them and all kind of sat together. I mean, you feel like a pretty wimpy Christian when you're like in the tourist section of the prayer meeting. You know, being an American tourist uh, for prayer, that, there's something wrong about that. But anyway, we're there to observe this all-night prayer meeting, and I think the Americans stayed an hour or two. I don't know, but, uh, but we're, they had this large auditorium. My memory is that it was like American Airlines Center size, so maybe 20,000 people. It's full for the all-night prayer meeting. So maybe 20,000 are at this meeting. It could have been 15. I don't know the exact seating capacity, but that's my memory. And so we're all praying, and at one point, whoever gets, one of the pastors, whatever, just gets up and says, we got this group of visitors, and we're kind of up in the top. And they said, let's all pray for them. And I just, and we're here, you know, we're getting a translation on it. And I just remember like 20,000 people or whatever is all facing us and praying out loud at once. It was like, I mean, I didn't even know what they were saying, but it was this rumble, like thundering of prayer all at once. And that was how they were praying. They were all lifting their voices together. Uh, and it marked me. It had a powerful experience on me seeing people fervently praying together, which was not confusing to God and was not offensive to me. It was actually powerful to me to hear voices crying out to God. So when it says that they unanimously lifted their voices together, they could, multiple people could be praying. Or on the other hand, that would certainly be allowable and acceptable. Also, it could be that one person's praying because we have this sort of recorded prayer, which is probably an outline. I, I believe everything written here was prayed, but I don't believe that was all that was prayed or this whole prayer meeting would have been about 30 to 45 seconds. So I don't think, oh, we're threatened. Oh, let's throw up a 30-second prayer. I don't think that's what's going on. It could have been one person, perhaps Peter, praying, and they're lifting their voices together in agreement. So Peter's praying this, and maybe they're saying, yes, may it be, Lord. Amen. Do it, Lord. We ask, please, Lord. So maybe they're just verbally responsive. That could be. Maybe they all said amen at the end. I don't know what they all lifted their voices, but they're all participating in this prayer. One voice to God. And look at what he prays, or they pray together. It's an instructive prayer. Um, And again, the context is so important. Because if you can imagine, I know I've already said this, but if you can imagine the people that executed Jesus firmly threatening you, do not talk about Jesus. So now we're going to pray with our friends because they said do not talk about Jesus. I'm thinking, what does my prayer look like? First of all, do I even pray? And my, my mind would go to, okay, guys, we got to have a strategy. They're saying we can't do so. Let's plan. What should we do? Where can we go? What can we say? What do you think? I, I would probably go to how do we respond strategically? What's our plan? There's no planning. They don't start with what's our strategy. That's not what they do. They go to prayer. So if I was, you know, if I was alert enough to go to prayer with everybody immediately, my prayer would probably be, help! That's not where they start. Or my prayer would be like calling down judgment. Lord, they're opposed to you. Judge them. Stop them. Silence them. My prayer would probably be deliverance. Get me out of here. I'd probably be looking at the next section of the mission field. Okay, Jesus said chapter 1, Jerusalem, Judea, the ends of the earth. We're in Jerusalem. They're going to hurt us. So Judea is looking pretty good. Where do you want us to go in Judea? Lord, well, how about the ends of the earth where nobody is going to beat us or kill us? I'm looking for the ends of the earth. I'm feeling called to foreign missions at that point when locally we're being have hostile threats towards us. 
So Lord, get us out of here. Help us. Deliver us. We do feel called to a safe land. But that's not how they pray. Look at how they pray. Verse one, or verse uh, 24. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign. What is the so- sovereign Lord means God rules. God's in control. God's in charge. God's over all. He's the king. He's the ruler. He has everything in control. So threat comes. Do not speak about Jesus. You're in charge. That's where they go. We're going to harm you. God, you rule over everyone, including those who are threatening to harm us. You better stop. We're going to shut down this movement, this birthing, this newly birthed Christian movement. We're going to squelch you guys. Lord, you rule over everything. So we're coming to you. First words out of their mouth. Ruler, God in charge. And look what they say next. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So they're getting a perspective of God. You created everything. This guy's saying he's going to harm us. That's, that sounds powerful. They're powerful. The Sanhedrin, that sounds powerful. You spoke a word and out of nothing everything existed. Everything came into existence. You spoke it. Okay, that, that puts the power on a scale a little bit. A guy who says, I'm going to harm you, who's entirely dependent upon God to keep his heart beating and sustain him, or God who created it, I think we're going to look to you. They immediately look to God. You rule. You create it. And here's the other thing that we might not notice, but they noticed because they prayed it. This phrase, who made the heaven and the earth and, every, and the sea and everything in them, that's the Bible. That's Psalm 146. Sovereign Lord, and then they start speaking the Bible to God. Psalm 146, verse 6 is what they're quoting. So they're praying, they're praying thoughts of God from the Scripture. This is what commentator James Boyce said. He said, now as they began to pray, the Scriptures rose up in them, and they found themselves talking to God in God's own words. That's powerful. The threat's coming, the fear's coming, the anxiety's coming, the distress is coming, we're turning to the Sovereign Lord, we're going to start speaking to God in God's words. We're going to start praying God's words back to Him. You created everything. They, they instantly go to the Word of God. Now here's how we can often think. and We can think, this Bible, this is God speaking to us. Prayer, that's us speaking to God. But the two mix. The two mix here, they're speaking God's Word back to Him. Prayer is praying God's word back to him. Uh, Prayer is listening to God. It's a conversation. It's receiving God's word, believing God's word, standing on God's word, and praying that back to him. The very next thing they do is they they continue in the scripture. So they're worshiping God as they're praying to the sovereign. They're praying to the creator. Look what verse 25. Through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then that next section of the Bible, that's from Psalm 2. So now they're going to pray Psalm 2. You're the, crea- you're the sovereign, you're the creator, you're the revealer. The, God spoke to us, the Bible, he spoke to us Psalm 2 through David. You reveal yourself through David. You reveal yourself through the Bible. So we're going to pray to the God who has revealed himself to us. That's the next thing they do. And they pray this passage out of Psalm 2. 
Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. That is a prophetic psalm that pointed to Jesus Christ. And so now the next verses interpret that. They began to look to the Lord and they put their context in the context of Christ. That yes, they're being resisted right now, but ultimately unbelievers resist ultimately resisted Christ himself. Look what they say in verse 27. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So that's, look at verse 26. The Lord and his anointed. They're saying that when the, when the Bible says in Psalm 2 that the rulers, the Gentiles, the rulers gathered against the anointed one, they're talking about Jesus, and they interpret it. They say both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel. So who rejected Christ? Well, the, the uh, Gentile rulers, Herod and Pontius Pilate. The people of Israel did. So what they're doing is they're locating the resistance that they're experiencing in the Scripture, and they're saying this reflects the fact that people resist Jesus. When Jesus came as the Lord's anointed, the Gentiles resisted him. The Jews resisted him. They raged against him. And he's saying, that's what happened. God said that would happen. Do you see what they're doing? In, they're being resisted, and they're saying, this isn't about us. No, there's, we haven't even gotten to any request yet at all. The prayer is, you're sovereign. You created everything. You reveal yourself by the Spirit in the Scripture. People resist the Savior. You sent the Anointed One, and people resisted Him. So now they're saying, this isn't about us. This is about you being resisted. That they're recognizing that this isn't all... When, when I'm in trouble, I'm thinking everything devolves upon me and my security and my happiness and me. They're, they're locating this outside of themselves. And in essence, by praying, recognizing Jesus, the Messiah, as the one prophesied who was resisted, that's the real issue here, is that it is a resistance of God that is going on here. And it's something that he ultimately controls. Look at the next verse, verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's back to the sovereign Lord section. So people resisted you. They killed the Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what your hand caused to happen. That's what you allowed to happen. You're in control. So there is a resistance against you and you're in control. You're ruling and you're Reigning. They only called, killed Jesus because you willed it so. So they were praying to God. They were praying about God. Their prayer is filled with his character. They're reminding themselves of Scripture. And as they do, it's building their faith. We've been having increased prayer in the church in the past number of weeks. And um, one of the things that's been unplanned... Uh, but it's been unique. We've prayed as a church since the beginning. But one of the things that's been unique is I've noticed in a lot of the prayer meetings, people reading Scripture. There's been a lot more Scripture readings. We didn't say, everybody find a verse. It just happened. But when I read this, I thought about that. And I've noticed in prayer, a lot of times people are praying and they're reading Scriptures that talk about God's character. And the effect that has on me when I'm praying with somebody and they're reading some truth about the Lord is it lifts my eyes off a circumstance and it lifts my eyes off, oh, here's who he is. And it builds my faith to want to believe, to want to pray, to want to lay all my needs 
at his feet. That's what's happening here. we got a big problem. They're resisting us and threatening us, and they have power, and we don't. So let's get our eyes off the circumstance, and let's look at the one who has all power. Let's look at the one who can do whatever he wants. Let's look at the one who, when the people rejected him and raged against him, the assessment is this is what his hand planned to happen. Let's look at the one who rules and who reigns over all. And when we pray the scripture and think about the scripture, it tells us the truth. Because we can hear so many voices that tell us bad things about our lives. We can get so worried and so anxious. What's going to happen with my health? What's going to happen with my job? What's going to happen with my finances? What's going to happen with my children? Am I going to find a spouse? Am I going to have kids ever? What's going to happen in my employment situation? What's going to happen with this relationship? Uh, what's going to happen with this relational difficulty? Or we can go macro. What's going to happen with the economy? What's going to happen in our nation? What's going to happen with our security? What's going to happen in our world? What's going to happen? With, is there going to be some massive disease that kills us? Is a meteor coming? That's the latest one. You know, one hit Russia now. It's all, other meteors are coming. So when's a meteor going to land on Frisco? I mean, we could just, all of these micro and macro worries. And I really don't need more voices tempting me about problems that are coming for my life, my family, my friends, my church, my nation, my world, my neighborhood. I I don't need more voices telling me what's going to go bad. What I need is a picture of God in control over it all. I need a picture of God from the scripture that stirs my faith so that when adversity comes, the first place, my default mode is not fetal position. My default mode is not panic. My default mode is not strategy planning immediately. My default mode is sovereign Lord. And I'm with my friends and we're praying together about this. That's the default that happens in the early church. The spirit is among them and this is how he's leading them. And so after all of this, you see, they start to bring their request and they're surprising. Again, the requests aren't kill the Sanhedrin, protect us, get us out of here, cause the problem to go away. Deliver us immediately. Lord, it'll be good for you if I'm safe because I can preach the gospel. If I die, I can't preach the gospel. So keep me safe for your benefit. They're not praying that way. I mean, you could even spin it, can't you? Lord, don't let us be hurt because if we're hurt, what would you do? Oh, yeah, God's going, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I do need you to run the universe after all. So. But look at what they do. They mention the threats, but it doesn't get much play. Again, if I'm praying, if I'm honest with you, it's probably 90% threat, dealing with the threat. Look how they pray, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. That's all they say. Don't pray, stop the threats, end the threats, kill the threaters. They don't say anything like that. Just look upon it, Lord. Please beware. I'm sure implicitly they're asking for intervention. But Lord, just beware what they're threatening us. You're, you rule over all this, but look at their threats. They don't ask God to judge the leaders. They just say, intervene as you will. We are servants. That's the next phrase. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants. We're following you. You're in charge. So please beware of their threats and do what you will. Now, it's not wrong to ask for deliverance. In the Psalms, we see this a lot. There's a lot of Psalms about deliver me from my enemies, especially David writing those. So that's not, a, that's not unbiblical. 
That is biblical to say, deliver me. But in this situation, that's not the focus. Look at their threats. Number two, give us boldness. Look at their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. This is a courageous prayer. This is an aggressive prayer. This is a spirit-filled prayer. This is a crazy prayer. This is a risky prayer. This is a, some would say, reckless prayer. Here's what they say. The authorities say, stop speaking in the name of Jesus. Here's our prayer. Help us speak more in the name of Jesus. Help us talk about Christ with boldness. Help us be free and faith-filled to declare who Jesus is in the face of opposition. Open our mouths. Give us the Spirit's power. Help us to stand up for Christ when we are being told to sit down for Christ or else. Actually, we're being told to shut up for Christ or else. Close your mouth or you are in trouble. Lord, open our mouths that we may declare who you are. They command us not to mention your name, so our prayer is that we would do it more and more with greater boldness. They don't pray, Lord, deliver us from this difficulty. They say, speak through us in this difficulty. There's a world of difference. In the difficulty, use me in the difficulty. Stop the trial, glorify yourself through me in the trial. Make it go away, use me as a mouthpiece in the midst of it. It's a difference. Look at their threats, but give us boldness. And lastly, he prays, do miracles. So speak with all boldness, verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Okay, let's back it up. Why did they go to jail, and why are they about to get beaten, and all kinds of other stuff happening, including death of followers of Jesus in the coming chapters? They got thrown in jail for preaching the Bible, preaching about Jesus. So now they're saying, help us preach about Jesus more. The reason they preached about Jesus is because a lame man was healed, a crowd gathered, and they preached about Jesus. So they say, help us to preach, and then let's go back. Do more of what you did that got us in trouble in the first place. They're saying, don't speak about Jesus. The apostles are praying, and their friends are praying, Lord, heal people. Be moved by your compassion. They're trying to squelch this this uh, this blossoming movement of Christ followers, the church. They're trying to shut this down. We pray that you do more miracles, more signs, more wonders. So draw more attention to yourself. What's going to happen if people get healed and start proclaiming it? It's more attention on us. What's going to happen if you do a sign and wonder? Spotlight is on us as we preach the gospel. We don't want to hide. We want you to draw attention to yourself, glorify yourself, magnify yourself, announce yourself through signs and wonders. Do stuff that's going to get everybody on us. Don't don't allow us to go under the radar. We want to be on the front page because we want you to be on the front page because you're healing and then we're explaining that it's Jesus, the resurrected Lord, whom you crucified but God raised, who died for sinners, who invites you all to come to him and experience new life. That's what we want to happen. People experiencing new life, the light moving forward, pressing into the darkness. That's what we want. So do that through signs and wonders so that your word may go forth. They are not asking to be in disguise. They are asking to be on display. For Christ to be on display through them would be a better way to say it. It's just an amazing, bold prayer. An amazing, bold prayer. 
It's the opposite of praying for protection. It's not wrong to pray for protection. We see it in the Psalms in particular. But it's the opposite. It's throw us out in the middle of it. Because the Holy Spirit is upon them and within them and using them. How does God answer their prayer? Well, look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. If there's an earthquake at the prayer meeting, when you say amen, one of two things are happening. Either the prayers weren't good and God's letting you know. (laughs) Uh, Don't pray that way. Or more likely, what's happening here, not more likely, certainly what's happening here, they're praying the will of God, and God is giving a physical sign that he's shaking things up. He's moving the earth under them or moving the walls of the building or whatever it is. He's moving them physically, and he's moving them spiritually because the building shakes, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. He answers their prayer. The building shakes, but they are unshaken, notice. They are not shaken by fear Worry, anxiety, cowardice, they're not shaken. They are strengthened because they are filled with the Spirit to go out and do just what they said. They speak the word of God boldly. Now, most of us in the room aren't in their circumstances here in safe and comfortable uh, Dallas, Texas. Most of us are not under physical threat for preaching gospel. Some of us in the room are under Uh, relational threat or other kinds of rejection and resistance, for sure, for preaching the gospel. So some can experience that. But what's happening here, the principle here, I believe, is relevant uh, regardless uh, in our lives. There's a principle here that goes beyond physical persecution for speaking of Christ. I believe that's the heart of the passage, and that applies. But, But there's something that goes beyond this, and that's when any type of difficult circumstance or adversity enters our life, how do we respond? When there's resistance or challenge, there's something here. Resistance comes our way, challenge, difficulty, suffering. Could be persecution, could be something else. God wants us to turn and look to him and his rulership and his sovereignty. God wants us to come to him in our distress. God wants us to think of what he's told us about himself in the scripture and to believe it and even pray it back to him in confidence and trust. God wants us to ask him to use us in our trouble. We can ask him to deliver us from the trouble, but I think that should always include, if it's your will, if it's not your will to deliver us from the trouble, use us in the trouble. Make us a witness in the trouble. Do miracles in the trouble. Allow us to be a voice for the gospel in the trouble or through the deliverance of the trouble. Make yourself known. So if you can be made known by delivering us from the trouble, if that's your will, do that. If you want to make yourself known in the trouble by using us, filling us with your spirit, empowering us for bold witness, then do that. But either way, we're looking to you. So we all have situations in our lives for for which that responds. Getting with our friends, praying to the sovereign Lord, being mindful of his scripture, and asking him to use us in the midst of our difficulty. Well, this leads, this bold prayer leads to bold witness. It says they were filled with the Spirit. They continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Every time we see Peter and John speaking the word, they're doing it boldly. Acts 1.8, which is kind of an outline for the whole book, and there he says, uh, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. And that's what's happened. The Spirit has come upon them, and they're now being witnesses. For Christ, there's a bold witness in their lives, and that is the work of the Spirit. It's not arrogance, it's not self-righteousness, 
It's not getting back at everyone and showing them, telling them how it is because we were wrong, but now we're right. It's not just enthusiasm over finding a new faith or a new religion. It's the Holy Spirit has given them new life and has filled them for boldness, a bold witness. I'm not going to say anything else about that. That's throughout the book. We'll see it almost every week. Lastly, there is a bold unity. There's a bold unity. The Spirit has affected them and drawn them together. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to any as they had need. So they are together. The full number of those who believed are of one heart and one soul. There is a joining Emotionally, their affections are for the Lord and for one another. There's a joining intellectually. They believe the same truth about Jesus Christ. There's a joining in mission. There's a joining in worship. Their hearts, their souls, and actually physically, they're providing for one another. So there is this material blessing that's happening as well of blessing one another. So it's a unity that's expressed in their heart in their presence together, in the way they're physically acting, it's visible towards one another. How did that happen? Well, it didn't happen in this context primarily through unity consciousness. They weren't saying, we've got to get the team together. We've got to be of one heart. Come on, guys, let's all be united. No, what happened was they had a difficult circumstance and they all looked to God. And when everybody's looking to God and everybody's thinking about the sovereign God and everybody's worshiping God and everybody's crying out to God, whatever various differences people have, they're all unified in the person of Christ, worshiping the person of Christ, leaning on the person of Christ. And what the enemy means to destroy them, bringing this resistance and this threat, it's only served to pull them together, to look to the Lord together, and that unifies them. They're firstly unified because they're looking up, and I believe they're secondly unified because they're looking out. The second part of the prayer is we're looking to you, now make us bold to tell other people about you. They're unified in mission. They're unified in their calling in Christ. They're unified in their mission, and they're doing it together. Now, the Scripture does tell us to be unity conscious in the sense of maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, but even there, we're looking at the unity of the Spirit. We're looking at what God accomplished. We're unified by looking up together not by looking inwardly together. And so they're joined together in this unity as they pray and trust the Lord. They have a common affection, a common mission, a common faith in Jesus Christ. And the example of their unity that Luke gives us here is this sacrifice for one another. There's not a needy person among them. Now, what's going on here? This isn't like a first century communism. It's not like everybody turns in everything that they own and it's distributed equally among the people. The, the, the process is this. There are people who don't have. So those who do have privately own things, they have private ownership. Those who do have are selling things and giving to those who don't have. They're selling houses, it says at one point. And that's radical. Here's what's more radical. They're selling land. These are Jews who live in the Holy Land. The land, it's not just like, well, that's a nice field. That represents their inheritance from God. If you own land around here, uh, it's been in your family forever, likely. 
But it's, it's something, it speaks. The land's not just something to sell. It's not just a possession. It's your stake in God's promised land. But they have a new promise now. It's a Savior. And they are releasing those things to meet the needs of others. Again, there is private ownership. We close the passage. We'll look at this next week. We close the passage with Barnabas, this guy, selling a field to meet a need. So they're giving what they have to meet the needs of others because they've joined together in the Lord. They have been changed by the Spirit. And they're not just saying, yeah, we're in one. We're members of the same church. They're saying, no, we're members of the same family. We're members of the same body. It's not just our name appears in the same database down at the church uh, database, but our name appears in heaven together, and we're joined together in Christ. And so what I have, I give to you. That's what's happening among them. There's a, that's the result of being filled with the Spirit, for sure. But there's another result here. Look at verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The apostles are talking about the resurrection. Acts will repeatedly talk about the resurrection. It is the big deal. It's why people are persecuted. It's why people are being harmed because they're proclaiming that Jesus' resurrection shows that he's the Messiah, that he's alive, that he's defeated our sins, that we're justified in him, not by keeping the law. We are justified in Jesus Christ alone. The Israelite leaders killed him, but God raised him. And so they're proclaiming this radical doctrine. The enemy is broken. The church is advancing under a resurrected Savior. So there's this resurrection orientation, this resurrection consciousness that's in the church. And that brings life. When there's an awareness that he is alive, he has defeated the sin, the flesh, and the devil. He is exalted at the right hand of God. He rules. He reigns. There is hope. He has done this to defeat the enemy to save us from our sins, to empower us to live Him and to love him, live for Him and to love Him, to join our lives together, to free ourselves of what we have. He is resurrected and we will too be resurrected and join Him one day. There's this powerful freedom that comes in a resurrection consciousness. So that's happening. They're, they're testifying. They didn't listen to the threats. It says they're testifying to the resurrection and a great grace was upon them all. I love that description. I pray that for you. I pray that for me. I pray that for our church. Grace Church. And a, gr- and a great grace was upon them all. Here's the first thing to note about great grace. Great grace does not mean no problems. I tend to think great grace, if great grace is on me, it is going great. Great grace means it's going great the way I like it. Even the way we talk about churches, how's the church doing? Oh, great grace on the church. What does that mean? External measurables, typically, is what we would think. Oh, there's more people coming. Oh, that's great grace. Um, things are going well. People are getting along. Great grace. There, is a, uh, th- there are outward signs of prosperity in the church. Great grace. I've got friends down there. Great grace. I like the people. Great grace. Wonderful. And all of that could be great grace, but look at this. We tend to think no resistance, no difficulties, no worries, no fears, great grace. That's not great grace, that's heaven. That's heaven, that is coming, and that is great grace. But great grace on this earth doesn't mean an absence of difficulty. Great grace means that when the difficulty's coming, everybody's getting together, and the default is you're sovereign. 
Great grace means everybody's lifting their voices together in prayer. The default is we pray. Great grace means if God's not helping me, I'm grumbling. I'm complaining. I'm angry. I'm giving up. I'm hopeless. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. I don't want to follow Jesus. You told me that he was resurrected and that life would be great because Christ is alive. My life has gotten worse since I believed in him and joined this group because now they're telling us to be quiet or they're threatening us. I didn't sign up for that. If you don't have great grace, that's your response. But great grace means we're going to pray. We're going to trust the Lord. We're going to minimize the difficulty, and we're going to maximize the Savior. Matter of fact, our prayer is going to be, Lord, if it's your will, remove the difficulty. But if it's not, use us in the difficulty. Save people. Heal people. They're not. Here's great grace. They're not praying prayers of vengeance on the Sanhedrin. They're praying prayers of mercy for others, healings, signs and wonders, gospel, mercy, Love, care, that's grace. Grace is when they say, do not talk about Jesus, and they're testifying about the resurrection. That's great grace. Great grace is not no problems. It's being filled with the Spirit. Great grace is I'm selling a land, selling land. I'm selling a house to feed people here. That is great grace. Great grace is speaking the word of God boldly, as they did. Great grace is not a needy person among them. Now, they're talking financially there, but I think that could be stretched to pray not a, needy, not a lonely person without someone with them. Not a needy person without someone praying for them in their need. If you can't meet the need, at least praying for the need. Great grace is not an absence of problems. Great grace is God in the middle of the problems. Great grace is the people of God together in one heart and one soul with God in their middle. Great grace is difficulties externally, difficulties in circumstances, difficulties in life, perplexing situations. Yes, but the people of God joined together, one heart and mind, in Jesus Christ, filled with the Spirit, looking to the Father, trusting Him, and praying that they be used in the midst of their difficulty. That's great grace. And if we get some of those other things thrown in, that's great as well. I mean, when they talk about signs and wonders, there are going to be people who are healed. I mean, there is a guy who was lame for 40 years that's probably still at this point dancing around in the temple celebrating. It went real well for him. Believing in Jesus brought a lot of prosperity into his life. It changed him physically. So God does those things. God provides in wonderful ways. There are tangible, physical blessings galore. All I'm trying to say is that in the midst of the difficulty that they're facing, great grace isn't negated by difficulty. It's on display in difficulty. In times of adversity, the Spirit produces bold prayer, bold witness, and bold unity in His people. That's what's happening right here. So how does that relate to us? Well, I think great grace looks like this, that our eyes are on the sovereign one in prayer together. Here's what their prayer demonstrates. God's bigger than my problem. I know that sounds trite. I know that sounds like a bumper sticker, but that's just what's happened. That's true. God is bigger than their problem, which is big. God is bigger than... What is it you're facing today where you need to say, I need a vision of God that's bigger than my finances. I need a vision of God that's bigger than 
my marriage struggle. I need a vision of God that's bigger than this addiction that I'm facing right now that dominates me. I, I, I need a vision of God. I need to see God as bigger than the problem I'm having on my job, the conflict I'm having with my extended family. I need a vision of God that's bigger than the the weight that I feel of caring for my aging parents. I need a vision of God that's bigger than the the emptiness I feel in desiring a child and not having one, or in having my child respond to the Lord when he or she is not responding to the Lord. I need a grace that's bigger than the physical suffering that I have from this chronic illness, from this undiagnosed illness. I need a a vision of God that's bigger than the confusion that I face at this stage of my life where I never thought I'd be at this stage of my life in these circumstances. That's what I need. So great grace means joining with friends, people who know the Lord like this, and looking together to God. Aware of the circumstance for sure but more aware of the God over the circumstance. Asking him to deal with the circumstance, and if he doesn't, asking him to use us in the midst of the circumstance. There's so many diversions. We can look at so many other places, but God's calling us to come to him and say, Sovereign Lord, and to do that together. Last week we heard a great message by John John Payne. If you were not here, I would recommend going on the website and listening to this message. Where he, It was so simple. It was just come to Jesus. If you're weary, come to Jesus. If you're troubled, come to Jesus. That's essentially the message. Still go listen to it, but that's essentially kind of gave it to you in a couple sentences. And that's it. The impulse from the Lord is look to him and ask him to work through our difficulties. And the last thing is our our hearts, great grace is our hearts on the Lord together. Great grace is our hearts joined together, meeting one another's needs. It's so uncommon. We live in a fragmented culture. We live in an isolated culture. We live in a superficial culture. And God calls the church to be filled with his spirit, to be joined together. Sometimes resistance pulls us together. It's a good thing. Challenges, suffering pulls us together. Weep with those who weep. That pulls us together. But let's... You know, not having financial need, that pulls us together. I mean, having a financial need, that pulls us together. In this case, those who had were giving to those who didn't. That's a work of grace. It can't be programmed. We can't schedule that. can't put on the calendar, okay, Wednesday nights, that's uniting our hearts and souls as one. Okay, got that one. No, this is something the Spirit has to do in us. The Spirit has to pull us together, join us together. We can teach about it, we can read about it, but the Spirit must apply it. And that's what I'm praying, that God would help each of us in our various individual difficulties, our corporate difficulties, that we would be drawn to default to looking at the Lord together in prayer, that we'd be filled with the Spirit, that we'd be empowered for bold prayer, bold witness, and bold unity. The kind of unity that says, we're so drawn together, I'll sell a house to meet your need. A house was as meaningful to them as it is to us. It's not like, oh, yeah, well, they had a small house. Yeah, but relatively, it was, it was their house. I mean, it was huge. May God work in our midst in this way. And that happens through the Spirit. Let's pray that His Spirit would fill us and that great grace would be upon us. Whether we're experiencing great blessing or great trial, may there be great grace in the midst of it all. Let's pray.
You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.